Hello and welcome to the Dungeon Musings podcast. My name is Kevin Madison and I will be your friendly Dungeon Muser today. Uh, today, I um, it's been quite a while since I have done a or posted an episode and uh, to be honest, I mean, it's largely because I've been so busy with uh, setting some stuff up on the uh, YouTube channel. So I figured maybe what I'd just do today is um, record a quick episode providing some updates on uh, some campaigns, uh, talk about, um, you know, some thoughts that I've had with respect to some of those different games that I've uh, dipped back into and, um, yeah, just kind of uh, fill up an, an, an episode with that. So uh, this is likely going to be kind of a, an, um, it doesn't, this episode does not necessarily have a specific, uh, you know, thesis statement as uh, some of my other ones do, but um, let's see where the episode takes us. So at the time of recording, um, I have made uh, one uh, small change to my uh, slate of, um, well, actually, I guess there's two changes to the slate of games that I've got on the go right now, and I've got a neat um, uh, one-shot coming up uh, as well. So uh, right now, I mean, the campaigns that have been at the time I guess first off at the time of recording it is July of 2019 um, at the time of recording the campaigns that have been going since January are my um, let's see here my astonishing swordsman and sorcerers of Hyperborea campaign that's been running since uh, or running uh, alternate uh, Saturdays um, my Starfinder campaign, playing through the Against the Aeon Throne adventure path. That's been going on since January as well. Um, and I think that's it. I think those are the, the the last two standing. I'm running through my week here. And I think those are the only ones that have uh, that kicked off in January that remain still uh, active. But um, the upside is, is, I mean, while there have been campaigns, uh, two campaigns that were started during that period, the Iron Gods campaign and the uh, Delta Green campaign that both kind of went uh, the way of the dodo, um, I have had a couple of other thing, interesting things come up. Um, one of the things, I, I, my last episode, I talked about the um, uh, the campaign that I'm running with uh, Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Uh, I'm using that game system with some pretty heavily heavy uh, house rules to run a more traditional fantasy uh, campaign uh, running uh, Paizo's uh, The Dead Roads uh, module. This is the first module in the Tyrant's Grasp adventure path. And uh, at the time of recording, we are about, gosh, uh, nine episodes into it. Uh, tomorrow night will be the ninth, uh, I guess, episode of that uh, campaign. And it is going really, really well. Like, um, the characters are all about second or third level right now. Um, the the rules for playing different uh, class or different races, uh, I'm calling them ancestries in the game, and uh, playing archetypes have, have worked out pretty well. And uh, the campaign has proven to be a lot of fun to run through. One of the things that I did uh, this time, as I did, I guess, with the Iron Gods Adventure Path. So one of the problems I've had with Adventure Paths in the past have been that they're just too, you know, uh, I think that they move along at the speed of plot, not necessarily the speed of the character-driven, you know, actions or incentives. And I mean, obviously, they can't write uh, Adventure Paths for every possible character and every possible motivation so the onus is on the the dm to to tweak it if they want to have a game like that to tweak it so that it links more to the specific character's uh, motivations and whatnot i did that in the iron gods campaign by starting off with a bit of a um 
uh, prequel, uh, you know, to the actual campaign to situate the characters in the city of Torch and then, or the uh, village or town of Torch, and then uh, kind of go from there. Now, I did the same thing in this as well, too, is we, we started off with, uh, rather than having the characters make their whole characters and know that they're in a city and then, you know, have them suddenly, you know, transition into a tomb, I just stripped the characters of all memory. And uh, we just sort of started from there. And then as we went along playing, we filled in some hints and some things they remembered. And we talked about, uh, you know, uh, emotional triggers or emotional kind of uh, responses that they would have to certain things they discovered, like names and, and images and uh, and whatnot. And um, it has proven to be a lot of fucking fun. Like the, uh, uh, I really... Um, I think that I, I worry that I overuse sometimes the like, all right, let's start playing. You don't know anything about your character. Let's fill it in as we go kind of trope. Um, it's a, or, or not trope, but like um, approach. It's a thing that I stole from video games years ago. And it works really well um, for certain campaigns. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily use this for every campaign, but this is proving to be a lot of fun. Uh, you know, the characters got a chance to really kind of know each other over the course of play. Um, and now they, uh, they know each other, um, and now they're learning the actual backstory connections between the two. So having that, uh, connection between the players in play or characters in play, uh, and then learning about the backstory connections between them is, is proving to be an awful lot of fun. Um, yeah, let's see here. What else is going on in that one? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, look, we're, we're, um, we're having, yeah, I mean, I'm really enjoying that campaign. It's, it's, uh, when I selected that particular module to uh, to run, it's written by uh, a guy named Ron Lundeen, and I didn't necessarily know uh, like recognize his name before, but it turns out he's he's written a bunch of modules that I really love as well. Uh, he wrote the module that um, the first adventure in the Against the Aeon Throne Adventure Path. So he he wrote the one that we're running right now in Starfinder, uh, and he wrote part three of the. Um, uh, gosh, what's it called? The Iron Gods Adventure Path. He wrote the um, the Smoking Tower, I think it's called, or Choking Tower. I don't know. Uh, in any event, he wrote, it's a really cool uh, site-based encounter with some extra, or site-based adventure with some extra neat stuff in it. So he's clearly got some great uh, and uh, creative design chops. Uh, you know, my uh, kudos to Mr. Lundin for some really great modules. And this one we're playing through really has, yeah, it's just got some a, a great kind of trippy, you know, Gaiman-esque, um, you know, Clark Ashton Smith-esque kind of otherworldly quality to it. It's really cool. I'm really enjoying the adventure a lot, and the particularly where we are right now, this is, it's been a little kind of eerie, you know, up until now, but we're in this uh, part of the adventure where the players are exploring one of the three locations they need to go before they can escape the realm of the dead, the uh, boneyard where they currently find themselves, and this particular one is, involves the players getting the approval of a psychopomp, but like a, a otherworldly creature or um, yeah, I mean entity that will uh, what do you call it? That ushers dead souls on from the from death and through on to the next uh, you know next stage of. Uh, of their existence, and this particular psychopomp has uh, studies dreams and has activated a dream gate, which then got uh, because of events of the story. You know, it um, it's in the hands of a, a rival creature, so the characters are going through in this creepy, you know, psychedelic house where 
yeah, where like crazy things are happening, like, you know, doors are opening that uh, lead to different places of the house and, you know, there's illusions and there's nightmares and it's proving to be a real cool and memorable location. Um, in particular, because I think that so much of that stuff is the players sorting out problems and trying to, to, to you know, solve problems. So it feels very old school too, even though it's, it's the last adventure and most recent adventure path published for the, uh, what do you call it? First, uh, Pathfinder first edition. So that's pretty, um, pretty cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, so that one, uh, that campaign is going out really well and we're running that, uh, effectively like every Tuesday, uh, no, sorry, every Wednesday and every Friday sessions. Uh, so, so that's great. And then on, um, uh, Saturdays, our, what was our, uh, against the Aeon, I'm sorry, what was the, um, Iron Gods adventure path? We have now swapped that out, but a lot of the same players are, are playing in a, a new Astonishing Swordsman and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, that, one that's based more in, uh, it's in the same continent and same general region as my other Saturday Ash game, but this one is more, it's taking more advantage of the, um, of some of the uh, kind of improvised or sandbox elements that I wanted to have in the actual main kind of hub city, you know, the quest hub, this uh, t- city called Tuleborg. And the players are doing a lot of interaction with some of the different factions that are in there. Uh, we're using a lot of the random um, encounter stuff that I, I wanted to use for this particular campaign. And it's proven to be a lot of fun. Like, I, I'm going into this those sessions with very little preparation, and um, it's proven to be really interesting. Like, the next... Uh, adventure coming up, uh, I think this Saturday actually is going to be pretty awesome. Like it's it's uh, the players are following up on something that just randomly came up in the course of them shopping, um, and I've figured out a way to how to tie that in to some of the existing stuff that's happened in that campaign and that kind of stuff. Like that kind of oracular discovery of like, oh, this could connect to this over here that happened previously. That's the reason I enjoy working on these types of games, you know, like when these kind of, um, you know, uh, pinning loose or tying loose threads together or, you know, tying random elements that have come up in the campaign together, that stuff I love. Like, I love thinking about the campaigns and how to fit it together uh, between sessions in, uh, you know, in that in that way. Uh, so it's, it's proven to be really, really fun. Um, and it's, it's, uh, you know, because of the sort of the resources that I've put together for this, uh, it has proven to be really exciting, uh, or really easy, I should say, to, to run at the table, you know, so that's proven to be great, and the players seem to be really digging it as well, too, like they, uh, there was a, uh, I'm using one of the random events tables out of the old, um, Advanced Dungeons and Dragons Oriental Adventures, uh, handbook, I love their, you know, random daily, monthly, yearly event tables. So I'm, I, I've been making use of those in this campaign. And uh, one of the things that came up in one of the recent sessions was that some, you know, uh, it, basically the way I interpreted this, the result for it was this powerful, like Amazonian uh, royalty princess effectively was in town and seeking an appropriate suitor. So of course, one of the players was like, oh, that's me. I'm totally suited. The, the, you know, the dowry I'm going to get from her is going to be amazing. So they went there and then, of course, <laughs> managed to completely turf their 
Um, there are their role playing and, and the reaction role. So they just went, what was started as being like a, we want to make, you know, we want to, um, you know, introduce ourselves and we'd be a suitable match for you turned into like them running away from the Amazon princess and her guards, you know? So I look forward to revisiting that, uh, as a future, you know, on a future occasion, because they've so thoroughly offended the uh, Amazonian contingent in town. So that's great. And I mean, that was uh, some, a really great example of some player-driven stuff. Um, they've also made friends with or, or made an ally of a, what do you call it, of a, uh, uh, an alchemist. And that's, that's what we're following up on next time. And this is the first time we've got a tentative link between the two different uh, Ash campaigns as well, too. Something's going on in the in that campaign that is having a spillover effect into the other campaign. So that's, uh, that's going to be pretty cool. I'm looking forward to, um, to exploring that on Saturday. Um, and then my main Ash campaign, that one's going great as well too. We, uh, yeah, we had, man, we had some really, really good mass, uh, like massive encounters in that game. And, uh, I've spoken in the previous, uh, podcast about the promise of the OSR and boy, oh boy, is that, uh, continuing to deliver in that game. It's a really great, uh, group of players too. So that really helps not to say that the other, you know, the other groups aren't either just, we consistently have like six to se- six or seven players who show up for those Saturday morning sessions and boy, oh boy, it's a great time. Um, the last most recent thing is I decided to, uh, to add a su- Sunday session to my slate of games because I run, uh, f- Wednesdays and Fridays are my usual kind of flex game days. And we've been running, uh, Ash, uh, using or using Ash to run the dead roads those days, the last little while. And, um, we've been using Saturdays to run two different astonishing swordsmen and sorcerers of Hyperborea games set in my custom setting of Tula. And on uh, Sundays, we now alternate between Starfinder and Modifius's uh, Star Trek Adventures. We had the first session for Star Trek Adventures on Sunday, this past Sunday. And um, I uh, I guess, like for one, Star Trek has has been a white whale setting for me for many, many years. I, I love the idea of gaming in the Star Wars, or Star Trek universe, I should say, not Star Wars, Star Trek. Um, I love the idea of gaming in the Star Trek universe. Uh, I have since the days of the uh, FASA, you know, Trek products. That version didn't really grab me all that much um, because it was just, it was, uh, to be honest, I was too young to really figure out, uh, I mean, maybe not too young, but just, I just, it didn't dawn on me to, to make changes to the rules to make it fit what I wanted. I was feeling a little slave to the mechanics, so I just didn't feel it could fit what I wanted to play, which was to say more, you know, next generation stuff. And also at the time, I think I did not know enough about the Star Trek universe. And I felt that that was, I would not do a good job of running that setting. Um, given my ignorance of many of the finer points of Star Trek, I, I knew I loved Star Trek. And I knew I loved reading about it, but I really didn't know an awful lot about that. Um, and you know, as, as a, <laughs> I was such a nerd. I actually read, um, the story versions, like, like short novella versions or short story versions of every episode. There was this massive series of books that I got from my local library at the time that each of them had every season. So like each season of the original series was, uh, converted into like a short story version so you could read it. And I ran, read through the whole fucking thing. So even though I couldn't see 
the uh, you know entire seasons, and I, I did try and catch Star Trek whenever it was on on uh, on the weekends. Um, I read all <laughs> all the scripts, which was crazy. Uh, but but anyway, I, I didn't feel. And then the next version that I was exposed to was the um, Last Unicorn Games version of uh, Star Trek, and I just could not um, couldn't get my players uh, to be particularly interested in in playing that version. Uh, I finally did get to run the Decipher version of Star Trek, uh, and I had a lot of fun with that. But that system was a little wonky. Uh, it didn't, yeah, it, just, it it was it was fine, but it just did not play. There were a couple problems with it. I don't remember what what the particular problems were. I don't think that the um, I, I should even say I don't I don't even remember what the problems were. I think it was easy to build a broken character uh, in it, or to have kind of an incompetent character. Um, but um, this version, so this version is based on um, the what he called the uh, 2D20 mechanic that was, uh, I think it was first uh, used in the Mutant Chronicles third uh, edition from uh, Modiphius, and then it was developed again for the Infinity RPG, and then uh, first published. Or uh, the next one published after Modiphius's uh, Mutant Chronicles was Conan, Conan 2D20, and I love that game. I really enjoyed that game a lot. Um, but I did feel that that game was a little um, excessively crunchy for big groups. Like it just would not suit uh, speedy play for a large size group. Um, so, but what I'd heard and what I'd um, because I, I had the Star Trek Adventures book for a couple of years, but I didn't really dig into it all that much. Um, what I'd heard is that Star Trek Adventures plays as a much more streamlined version of that 2D20 game. So um, if you're not familiar with the 2D20 mechanic, basically it's that every ta- all task resolution is rolling 2D20. Each of those individual dice is compared to a sum of your attribute and then either a skill or a discipline or depending on the, on the game. So it's, it's going to be a number that's usually between about... I don't know, about 14 or 15 and uh, maybe 9 or so. So like 9 to 14 or 15. Each time you roll within that number, you count one success. Um, And then if you roll a natural one, it counts as uh, two successes. And then if you roll 20, there's something that's called complication that comes in. Or depending on the game, it's, it's complication or it's doom or it's a threat. Or depending on the game, they call them different things. But the, the commonality between all the games is it's the sum of two different numbers. You get numbers of successes. You can get different uh, extra dice to add to the dice pool to a maximum of five. So you never, you know, the dice pools are capped at a certain amount, which is pretty good because it, it prevents it from being too, too swingy. There's a predictable kind of number or range of numbers you're going to get. And um, it, um, it also, all of them feature something called momentum uh, and something that is generally it's like, it's like a bad a DM mechanic a DM resource um, and it's called threat or doom or heat depending on the different game I'm not sure what the name is in uh, Mutant Chronicles to be honest but um, what it is, is and those are is those are a a resource that goes that you know is generated and then spent and it can buy extra dice it can make other changes to different scenes to social scenes to combat scenes so it's a really fun and narrative it's a, once you get playing it it plays very well the the momentum mechanic and the complication slash threat mechanic is really good and the um the idea of the players you know um being able to 
add to the DM's pool of resources to help themselves in the short term is a great risk-reward mechanic as well. So it's a really, I really, really like the mechanic. And the version that they've got for Star Trek Adventures is awesome. It is so good. Like, it um, it felt nice. Uh, you know, it felt very nimble. Um, it felt like it had some good crunch. The players were making mechanical decisions, not just... You know, um, it's not it, there. There were there was a game there that they were able to interface with, but it uh, it also moved very quickly and felt like it moved very intuitively. Uh, combat was really good in the game uh, as well. Too, we had one combat scene. Uh, it's combat in this feels a lot less uh, kind of fiddly than what to the the Conan one did, but I mean that's partly because there's less um, less difference. Like most player. They're all playing members of Starfleet, so they're all going to be carrying a phaser, which means there's one weapon that they all kind of need to know, and then if they're going to fight hand-to-hand, they need to know that one too, whereas in Conan, everyone's using different weapons, so each weapon's going to have different special abilities and stuff like that, so um, they... Um, I saw that, like, I noticed that the players made really good use of their talents. They, you have a handful of talents that you start with, which are basically, like, kind of like feats in uh, D&D, where it's things that uh, are special abilities that your character can do that no normal characters cannot, or things that do not have that ability cannot have it. And so that's something that supplements already the cool stuff they can do with their momentum. And um, and man, was it a great session! Like it was just, it felt very, very much like a Star Trek game. There, it, this one, Star Trek, feels much more like a story game in the sense that there are clear mechanical elements that are at play in the game. Um, that is, I think a cool, I think a cool element to it. Um, like an example of that is there is something called traits, which uh, I understand is very much like something similar from the Fate game. Uh, I, I don't really, I don't run or play Fate, so I don't really know what the the nomenclature for the stuff in that game is. But what a trait is in Star Trek Adventures is something that will have an effect on the overall you know, play for scenes that occur in that, uh, you know, that are subject to that trait. So an example that they had in this first adventure was, the trait was, was that the ship that they were going over to was, uh, had subspace interference. And what that meant was that their teleporters would not work or transporters wouldn't work and their comm badges would not work and they couldn't, you know, um, they could not uh, use their scanners for rain, you know, greater than basically like you know a foot or so away from them. So, and the neat thing about calling it a trait is, is it is recognizing that there is a game mechanic that can change. So, if the characters do something to negate temporarily or permanently that specific trait, then it no longer has an effect on that location. And that's pretty cool, you know. And then, like, as they got on board, they found other things. Like, there was a location trait that uh, related to the lights being low because it was on emergency power, you know. And there was another one that was there was no power. So that meant, like, doors couldn't open. They couldn't, uh, you know, use um, panels and stuff like that. Like, so... Uh, and the one neat way where they, they play, that sort of prompted the players to engage with the fiction and get around that was, you know, they were sort of spitballing ideas and they're like, you know what, let's, let's use our shuttle, which they had, had to use to get on board the, um, uh, the uh, vessel because they couldn't teleport over there, um, was they, they made use of that, um, 
uh, what do you call it? They made use of their shuttle to run power to a door, and then one of the players made use of his talent to, to jury rig something to, um, you know, to, to get the uh, door open. And that kind of like, hey, let's try this kind of stuff, you know, um, that's really, really cool. Uh, the, the game has, does not have a big list of skills, you know, in it. What it has instead is you have certain disciplines, which are sort of like broad areas of, you know, that will govern certain task resolution in Star Trek. So it's like your con, your command, your, um, engineering, you know, science, things like that, security. And then you, what your focuses are, your foci are, specific expertise in that you've gotten that it could be like you know to deal with uh, shuttlecraft or to deal with you know hand-to-hand combat or small arms tactics or, or small unit tactics or something like that and um, those give a specific um, benefit they help you potentially generate more successes and again like that it just felt really light on its feet uh, without having to resort to a massive list of skills like you do in other versions of Star Trek and to be, to be honest other role playing games this gave a great way for players to have or characters to have specific expertise without over you know burdening the system with a bunch of specific foci I think it's a really clever design element and I want to think about other ways I could make use of this because it you know the, the one we only got one session done so far but man, oh man, did it move light on its feet. Like, it just, um, it was a really fun session. It felt like there was great ways for the players to kind of structure the mechanical challenges and the mechanical um, uh, tasks they were going to undertake by the virtue of their own creativity. And then the system gave us a great way to resolve that stuff. So it was really, really cool. And... Um, yeah, so anyway, so I'm looking forward. That's going to be ongoing for at least for the next uh, three, you know, alternate uh, Sundays. And, and I'm hoping that we might c- extend it out and play through. Uh, what we're doing is we're playing through the first adventure in the mini campaign that's included in the starter set. And I'm, I'm really hoping now that we might play through the whole thing because it is a pretty cool arc. And it hits on all sort of the, you know, the greatest hits of the Star Trek universe. So we got Romulans, we got some... You know, Starship Combat, there's Klingons later in it, so it's pretty pretty cool stuff. And um, and there's some other elements. I uh, the, the starter set is just slowly introducing uh, elements of the rules to the game, and there's another element called uh, values, uh, directives, and determination that I'm really interested in, in uh, seeing at the table as well, too, that I think really will focus on the personalities and the beliefs of the characters. And that's cool too like anything that's going to focus back and allow the players to have a game of role playing their characters in a meaningful way you know so they feel like they're playing a game and not just sitting around you know doing um you know uh kind of like amateur theater uh then i think that's that's really cool because as much as like i love role playing in my role playing games but i do want it to be a game you know i don't i don't want to just sit around and make pretend uh and um boy this game does a good job of that so so those are the games that i've got going on uh, right now um, let's uh, let's maybe t- now transition and talk about games I got in the hopper, things that I'm, I'm planning, and that have games I've really been thinking about, and maybe talk about why I feel like I've been engaged with those games in the last little while. Okay, before I talk about the things that uh, the other games I've been looking at, I actually forgot that there is a one shot that I've got uh, planned 
coming up in a couple of days, and that would be the um, a one-shot for... It's a combination session, actually, that is partly to play Starfinder, uh, because I love playing Starfinder, and also partly to serve as a tutorial for how to run games uh, online, and in particular using uh, Roll20. Um, a friend of mine, uh, Chad Ginther, uh, who's... Uh, Chad's actually a player in uh, many of my uh, games, uh, you've seen him if you are a uh, subscriber or a viewer of the YouTube channel, the Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. You've seen Chad in our Barrow Maze game. You've seen Chad in our, uh, uh, gosh, what else has he played in? Um, uh, well, the uh, gaming marathon, uh, he was there as well. And um, anyway, Chad also had a friend who was asking about uh, going online. Uh, or running games online, and uh, Chad had responded to her saying, oh, you know, uh, Kev does this stuff. So I smart-ass said, well, you know, maybe someone, some kind of DM might run something online for you. And now I find myself running something online for her. So I had um, initially, I mean, like, I'm happy to do that. That's always, it's fun to meet new people, and it's also fun to, uh, I've been sort of half-ass thinking about doing a a Roll20 tutorial anyway, and this will be a much more fun way to do it. And I think I've got a way uh, to do that, uh, you know, in the game as well too, so like uh, without uh, disrupting the uh, the play of the game too, too much. So that's going to be pretty cool. And we'll be uh, playing through, I had initially thought that I was going to run a Starfinder, um, what do you call it, Uh, a Starfinder... uh, a custom kind of uh, session, like a custom adventure that I'd come up with, and then to be honest, I just had a hell of a time trying to come up with a uh, a specific one shot, um, and uh, uh, and then sure enough, I actually managed to um, uh, well, not managed to, but it dawned on me that like, well, look, dummy, there's a terrific uh, pre-made one shot adventure ready to go, you know, and that is of course the uh, Skitter Shot. It's the first adventure. That was uh, published for the free RPG day uh, last year. Um, it features these lovely little, like, uh, six-armed furry critters called Skittermanders, which have become kind of the um, like mascot creatures for the uh, Starfinder game. And, uh, and yeah, sure enough, I got, so I got uh, three of my players, and then um, the, um, the uh, my, my Chad's friend uh, are going to play, and it should be a lot of fun. Like, I... Uh, uh, I'm just uh, finishing, I'm in the process of loading the characters into uh, the uh, Roll20 game, um, and then we're, I'm looking for, I think it will, we'll be able to get the this entire adventure done in a four-hour period. Uh, if not, I'm just going to skip through some stuff and, and uh, uh, rush it along, but it should be pretty cool. Um, and that game, you know, like I, I um, boy, I just, I, I really enjoyed that game an awful lot. I know I've talked quite a bit on the uh on this podcast about uh, Starfighter in the past, but it, it's just, it is such an easy game to, um, to to run once you're actually, you've got it at the table. Uh, I tend to get lost sometimes when I think I want, about what I want to do with it, just because it is such a wide open game. It's, it's really hard to pin down stuff. Um, and I think that's probably because I'm coming at it from a DM perspective rather than a player perspective. You know, if I had a set of, of uh, characters and then I was just planning for those characters, it'd be a lot easier to, to run uh, than the, um, you know, than uh, trying to write an adventure. Actually, I don't know. I don't know why that is. It's, it's weird. I mean, like, I, I you know, I, I set um, or I write campaigns for other games with no difficulty. 
Uh, and then I just have players make characters within the context of that. But maybe it's because it's more. I, I I want to run that as more of a character focused thing. So I want to be writing a story that fits to those characters. I don't know. Well, something to think about for maybe a future episode. My relationship with Starfinder. <laughs> so, but anyway, I'm I'm looking forward to getting that back to the table and seeing um, of the players who are going to be in that. It's none of the, the, the folks who play in my regular Starfinder game. So I'm looking forward to see how they respond to the system. Um, and then I guess actually, and then at the time of recording too, this is one day after we created uh, characters using Rune Cl- uh, Quest Glorantha. Uh, that's been a game that I have been really interested in, particularly since the uh, I got the box set uh, for it or the slipcase edition of it that had the um, not only the core rulebook but also the uh, uh, bestiary and the GM uh, kit and the DM screen for it. And uh, boy, oh boy, do I. Uh, do I enjoy that game? Like it's, it was a really interesting session. Um, I'm not. Um, it's not. I don't think it's. It's necessary to like. You know, it's. It's not spurning me right now. Like I immediately know what I want to do with the the game, the way that the, you know, first session of Star Trek Adventures is. But that's only because. Um, I think I'm going to need to... Star Trek Adventures is going to lend itself to kind of the, you know, seat-of-my-pants DMing that I do in a lot of other games. Whereas with uh, RuneQuest, I want to be more um, more careful uh, with it in, in the sense of taking care in how I'm structuring the adventures and uh, motivating the players and things like that and, um, and paying attention to their particular... You know uh, their connection to the setting because one of the things that is really awesome about the character creation system is how much it fills out your character's history. So, like, I know that one of the players has a surviving parent, at least one, maybe two. I can't remember if there's a second one. Uh, this week has been a long week, and I, to be honest, I was a little tired <laughs> when we were creating the session, so or creating the characters during that session. So, I know for sure one of them is surviving, so I'm looking forward to fleshing that out. Um, we've got some, by virtue of the of the system of passions that you create over the course of, of uh, character generation, which are kind of like the um, the personality motivators for the characters. There are uh, some good cues for how I can motivate the players, uh, or the characters, I should say, uh, for um, for these adventures. So that's uh, that's pretty cool, um, and. I'm also looking forward to generating the extended family for these uh, characters as well too. Um, th- we took about took us about almost two hours on the nose to create uh, the characters from start to finish, and there was three of them, and we ended up with three very very different characters, and it worked pretty well. Like, you know, it, it actually, you know, um, we didn't come up with some specific like we didn't walk away from this from that character generation system or session with specific connections to between any of the characters uh necessarily but it was really engaging and fun to see what each of the players was going through and how they uh they their characters came together in it it's a really 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 cool system uh, i'm uh definitely looking forward to um to exploring these characters at the table we've got at least two maybe three more players who have to make characters for that particular campaign too so i'm looking forward to doing that again i definitely um uh well you know i mean i was gonna say that it was it was a little start stop and start uh, as we went through this but it, to be honest it wasn't like we really it seems like we got a lot right about the uh, character generation right from the get-go um 
so which was uh, a contrast to the first time I used a similar life path system in uh, uh, Traveler. In Traveler, we got a bunch of things wrong because it was just so. I guess that speaks to how much easier it is to navigate the RuneQuest Glorantha character generation system and life path system than it is for those other ones. But um, but yeah. Um, you know, we haven't uh, dug into the one thing. There, there is some homework that the players have for that uh, game where they've got to select their spells and stuff like that. And I'll be interested to see. Um, I think it'll be an interesting measure of how engaged with the game the players were, um, how fast they actually got to that stuff. Like whether they went to it immediately or whether they, um, you know, whether they took their sweet time to, uh, to make those decisions. You know, as to what their spells, because that's going to require them reading, you know, about their runes and about the different things. And one of the players picked sorcery, which is a totally different mechanic for learning spells and casting spells. And I, I'm I'm interested to see what, um, what that whether that player takes the time to actually read the rules, or whether we're going to do a, uh, you know, a session where we're just kind of like a tutorial session to learn about the um, how sorcery actually works. And actually, like to be honest, either way is fine. Um, I, uh, I actually think it would be cool to do a tutorial session to talk about the different magic systems in RuneQuest. Just, I mean, partly because it'll make an interesting video or hopefully a helpful video for people playing RuneQuest Glorantha. And also it'll be helpful for us to, to have that session to go through and make sure we all know how that stuff works. I mean, I, for one, uh, have no idea how it's going to play at the table and look forward to seeing what that's going to be like. But, um, but yeah, that was really good too. So those are two other games that we've got on the go. Um, now, let's talk about the other games that have been kind of uh, catching my attention over the last little while. Okay, so next, I guess, is um, the games that I've been looking at uh, that I don't have a firm, um, you know, firm plan to get into the table. Um, I have been uh, talking about getting uh, Zweihander. Uh, the, um, it's kind of a um, uh, Warhammer fantasy roleplay clone uh, that was uh, put out a little, uh, I mean, not a little while ago. It's been, uh, there's been iterations of it out for a while, but I played Z- uh, Zweihander um, a few months ago, and I really had a good time with it, um, and I got the new, the most recent uh, edition. Uh, I had the print-on-demand version available through drive-thru, and then I got this new version, and the new version is, is amazing. It's really beautiful, great, to, you know, high-quality um, uh, paper. Uh, it's a little smaller. It feels more, you know, more sturdy and like more of a, um, a quality production. Um, nothing the other one was bad. It's just that, you know, you really can tell the difference between a, you know, big printer, um, you know, book, like something from a big publisher, uh, versus something that's kind of come from drive through RPG. Um, but, um, but anyway, the, the uh, so I, I've got it and I, I like it an awful lot. Like I, um, I'm still just, I don't know what I'm going to do with it, you know, like, because it doesn't come with, um, the baked in setting the way that Warhammer fantasy does. So I could run it in Warhammer, but I mean I've got Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay Fourth for that, so I don't know why I would uh, I would bother with that. And Warhammer Fantasy Fourth is is a really really great game. I've uh, our campaign is currently on hiatus for that just because we're playing Ash instead, but um, it's still a really good game, and I look forward to, to running it again at some point. Um, so it won't be that, but I mean, and I thought about doing a uh, a fan or a um, historical kind of thing for it. Um, I think maybe what I need to do is just come up with some kind of fairly loosey-goosey idea for an adventure and then just have spend half the session just creating characters because it really doesn't take all that long in that game. Uh, there's not many selections you need to make. There's some fun random roles you get to make. So 
So that'll be good. I mean, I um, what what has really supplanted that in terms of the kind of like dark fantasy thing, to be honest, has been uh, revisiting uh, GURPS. So uh, if you are not familiar with GURPS, uh, GURPS is the generic universal role-playing system published by Steve Jackson Games. And it is one of my... It's not a game that I played so much as a kid. I had it as a kid, but I never really got it to the table. Um, I read it a great deal alongside my Champions book. And I think at the time... Uh, when I was a kid, Champions was my go-to like hero point um, or point by system. Uh, so ch- Champions are the hero system. So I never really got into GURPS all that much, but I was aware of it and I read it a lot. Like I read it enough for my third edition book to fall apart. Um, and then I um, I got into uh, well, actually, and I had purchased quite a few of the books uh, for it as well too. Uh, for third edition, um, GURPS had my goodness, like this is this is in the in the ripe like late '80s, early '90s when publishers were just thinking volume was better than quality necessarily. But the um, uh, the books coming out from, from GURPS or for GURPS were really amazing, good quality as well. But it was all very niche stuff. So you like, uh, it, generic, what uh, GURPS was, was it designed to be like your go-to one system. You use that system and you play any kind of adventure you could possibly want with that game. And uh, now for third edition, there were a bunch of books that came out that uh, sort of gave you optional rules to tweak it. At default, um, GURPS plays very, um, you know, it's a very simulationist game. Like, you know, getting your character getting stabbed with a knife in GURPS is very much like what you would expect it would happen like in real life. You know, there's blood loss, there's shock, there's, uh, depending on where you get, you know, where you get hit, it could very well be a, like a lethal blow. But it does have a, a, a very um, detailed uh, second-by-second combat. Like, each round is one second, so there's lots of parrying and whatnot. It's a very exciting game. Um, and there's lots of ways that they, the, 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 or the core mechanic is uh, 3D6 for task resolution, and then D6s for uh, results, for, for like combat and stuff like that. And um, it's, my boy, like, it's just a, uh, so the third edition I didn't get quite as much into, but then fourth edition came out, and fourth edition was kind of a, well, let me back up. So they had all these source books out, and the thing is, is that to play GURPS, even like the, just the quote-unquote basic set ended up being about three or four books with a, a lot of text in them. So it was really hard to piece together specifically what you were going to do, and then they had uh, just reams of uh, source books. You know, everything from historical books that were like Vikings and Japan, China, Rome, Greece, uh, you know, mythic, uh, um, uh, what do you call it, uh, Celtic myths, um, to, you know, licensed settings like Lensman or um, uh, Discworld, uh, or, gosh, what else do they have? Um, uh, oh, Dying Earth. Um and then also things just that were like general, like general all-purpose things like high-tech or ultra-tech or spaceships or Traveler. They had a very successful uh, third edition uh, group's Traveler uh, line as well. Uh, so, you know, there was just a, like you could find anything you could possibly want. Cliffhangers. They have one, one of my favorite ones from it was uh, Age of Napoleon. So if you want to play like Horatio Hornblower stuff, you know, they had a source book for that. Um, but the uh, the trouble with that is that... Uh, it just made for, you know, a huge product line. So around, um, uh, gosh, I want to say that the early 2000s, so the early aughts, uh, Steve Jackson Games decided to re-release GURPS, but they did it in this really beautiful, like, prestige kind of format. They did uh, hardcover books, glossy pages, uh, full color, you know, uh, it was they were really, really great, and that's the, the edition that I have run the most. Uh, this came out around late 
of the late life cycle for 3.5 uh, D&D. And by that point, I had uh, I disengaged from D&D. I, I had my fill of, of the D20 systems. Um, I was not uh, keeping current with the, the source books that were coming out. I just didn't... It didn't interest me any longer. And um, I had... Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd gotten gotten into to GURPS. And I just loved it. You know, like, it was... Um, uh, the game is a little more streamlined in terms of the, the things you're tra- the stats you're tracking uh, for creating characters than what uh, say Champions was. Champions has probably about I don't know 25 or Hero System has like 25 different uh, um, characteristics you're tracking. You know uh, maybe maybe more even. But uh, the uh, what that meant was uh, that. Oh, uh, sorry, but that passed a motor vehicle collision. <laughs> Jeez. Um, the so um, the, the new edition came out, and and the um, hero like you know hero had like I said so many so many different uh, stats in it, and some were count you know derived. Now this is this is an um, uh, fifth uh, fourth edition uh, hero, and and uh, up to about I think sixth they said they had a lot of derived characteristics as well. So like. There's just a lot of stuff to track when you're making a hero character. You know, in contrast, um, I could probably fit a GURPS character, you know, not full descriptions of their abilities, but I could fit a GURPS character on a postcard. You know, like, they're, especially for a low-point-cost character, it was very easy to pick out what the advantages, disadvantages, skills... Skills list would be the most uh, substantive thing because uh, GURPS is one of those games that has a really expansive uh, skills list. But um, but it was yeah man I, I really was a sucker for it totally fell fell for it and then as different books came out for it there were certain things that just kind of really really captured my uh, you know my imagination in particular um, when the Powers book came out Powers was their um, their version of like basically like the superpowers rules for I mean they had a, some pretty comprehensive build uh, ways to build a lot of different powers in the core book and I actually ran a uh, like uh, mutants you know dark future kind of thing with uh, with GURPS 4th that was one of the first things I did with it and then in um, uh, once powers came out powers really upped the ante and provided some really terrific uh, rules for for building pretty much anything you could conceive of you know uh, any kind of uh, fictional ability you could build it that's not to say your character could necessarily afford it, but I mean, you could you could really build it, and they had good advice on how to structure kind of power, you know, uh, frameworks. Uh, and then they did a print-on-demand version of their supers game, and boy, did I love that! So, and then I mean, there's been a bunch of other really beautiful hardcovers that came out for it, like martial arts and you know, low tech, uh, high tech, uh, ultra tech, uh, biotech. Um, Magic, thaumaturgy. Uh, so there was really great books uh, that came out for it. There was a couple setting books as well too, like Infinite Worlds and uh, the Vorkosigan Saga. I think Saga. I think it's called. Um, they did a new version of uh, Traveler, which was set during the Interstellar Wars. So it's a canon period of um, uh, what do you call it? Of the uh, Traveler Third Imperium uh, universe, just way in the past. And um, and yeah, I mean, it just it was it was a really really, really good game, you know, I mean, uh, I really enjoyed it a lot, and then I, I got out of it around the time I got back into 4th, I guess, 4th edition D&D came out, really started playing that a lot, and that's what we played, you know, uh, between that time, though, GURPS was kind of my go-to, I used that for pretty much everything, uh, anything I, I would want to run, super, I ran, 
you know, Old West horror with it. I ran, um, gosh, fantasy, like D&D. I had an Eberron campaign that I ran using uh, GURPS um, fantasy or kind of a, a clued-together version of it. And um, I ran, oh boy, what was the other one? Uh, oh, New Warriors. <laughs> I ran a superheroes thing. So we ran and played uh, with the New Warriors. So, oh, and I ran a pirate thing, a pirate horror thing, too. Uh, it was very easy to mix and match genres in uh, GURPS. Uh, so, you know, uh, I did have a great, great deal of experience running the game. And, uh, and then we kind of stopped playing it. You know, we started playing 4th edition D&D, and that led us into other things. And then it, it, I haven't touched GURPS in a long time, and it, it had actually sat... Uh, near the uh, the back of my um, what do you call it? The back of my shelf for quite some time because I uh, I just didn't expect to be you know using it anytime soon. And then I started talking to a friend on uh, Twitter about uh, you know we were, I had was stuck in a, uh, um, a discovery where I wasn't doing anything. Like I, I already there's no useful information that was coming out, so I could spend most of my time on my phone. And uh, I, uh, I was tw- tweeting with my buddy uh, Arlen Walker uh, about that and said, hey, you should take a look at uh, GURPS. Um, the GURPS ha- has always had a thing, or maybe not always, but I mean, for as long as I've been involved with GURPS, they've had something called uh, GURPS Lite. And GURPS Lite is basically just like the, it's a stripped down version, like a 32 or 50 page uh, version of the rules um, for, for you to make, you know, characters. And I was like, okay, try this and see what you can do. And... Um, we went back and forth quite a bit on it, and I, I think I did not... I, I have made a mistake with it that I've made before with uh, GURPS in particular, but also with Universal Systems. So, um, and then that should maybe... I'll, let me just put a pin in, in the discussion of GURPS for a moment and just talk about this because it's worthwhile noting. So, the thing that is really awesome about Universal Systems is that, in theory, you can build pretty much anything you want. Anything you can conceive of, if you've got an unlimited budget, you can build you can build it in these systems. You can build something that will model that. You'll make the system work the way you want it to. It's really, really awesome. Um, however, you're building your individual character. You are going to be limited by your point cost. You know, you're only going to have however many. I think it's like 400 character points in in uh, a standard champions character nowadays, and it is. Um, you know, default character in GURPS is 150 points. Or if you're playing Dungeon Fantasy, it's 250. So there are certain things you can expect from a 150 or 250 point character that you cannot, you know, that that uh, you cannot just build anything with that. Or at least not satisfy. You can't build a satisfying version of of those with it. So um, what what I had done is I said, oh, build this, and, and then uh, Arlen picked one of his favorite characters from fiction and tried to re, you know try to build it in. Uh, GURPS, but the character is one of these like hyper competent, you know, heroes. From um, he, he would be difficult to to, fit, to model in a lot of role playing games, uh, but um, because he just he can do so many things, and then you think, oh yeah, in a, in a universal system, this is what I'll build, and like it just is not possible with the points that he had. So he found he kept making like having to make scaled back and scaled back and scaled back versions of this character. And I, it didn't dawn on me until after we talked for, you know, a bit back and forth. I'm like, oh, fuck, that's my fault. Like, I mean, I'm a dummy. Like, you know, setting expectations of what you can build with this is way more important so you don't feel like, oh, I'm getting a shitty version of the character I really wanted to play. You know, it's almost like the problem of making a first-level character that you've got planned out to, you know, say 15th or 20th in a level-based game and then just feeling like, God, when do I get to do the cool stuff? I don't get to do the cool stuff at all right now. Um... 
what's worse because you're having seen all that cool stuff and you're having it all stripped away as you try and make the character fit within your point budget. Well, um, I went back and I rebuilt a, uh, that, that character concept in a different way uh, and then sent it back to him. And then we're planning on, on bringing that character back, uh, back to the table. Um, I mentioned this is that was not the first time I've had that happen. I had someone else do the same thing too. Of come up, uh, we were going to build a grounded 150 point uh, character, and then he started trying to build all this crazy crap like a magic sword that could like burst into fire and, and all this other nonsense. And I'm like, no, this is not this is not the type of thing we're doing, you know. And it, it would be um, in my mind for both in both occasions, I was just like, you can't build a first level character like that. And that's not what they were doing. What they were hearing was. Oh, I can build anything I want in this. So I want to pick the coolest thing I want to play. So, um, yeah, that's a, a good lesson for me for for going forward is is to uh, uh, to say to really emphasize that it's you know the, that there is going to be the limitation of of uh, powerpoints and make it and make it clear what the characters are going to look like, like what what a typical character is going to look like in that, so that the characters can kind of keep their expectations within the boundaries of the. Um, you know, of, of what's possible rather than just be dissatisfied that they're not playing, you know, uh, a superhero in a first level D and D game, you know? So, um, but GURPS has been, uh, something I've been, I've been reading quite a bit about, uh, lately. I, I'm not, I've got a rough idea of just a, a very, very simple scenario to, tr- to sh- showcase kind of some of the, the really fun parts of it, like how, uh, social, uh, interaction works in it, like the social rules, how, uh, combat works, how uh, injury and magic uh, work in it as well too, because it's just a, it's a really good game. Like I mean, I, the one thing I, I will say about GURPS is, uh, and it's this is true of any game that has like advantages or disadvantages, like um, Savage Worlds does, like uh, Hero, uh, like uh, Five Rings. You know, the the most recent edition of Five Rings, and to be honest, every version of Five Rings, advantages and disadvantages abound in those games, and. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to... One of the thing with those is that it makes me think more... About more of the character. It makes me think more of the of that that holistic thing. You know, who, who are their friends? Who are their contacts? You know, what uh, um, what languages do they... You know, have they been exposed to? What cultures have they been exposed to? What are the, like, everyday skills that they've developed over the course of, of uh, you know, their life? Uh, versus... Um, you know the uh, things they've they've developed uh, specific to their profession. Uh, so um, yeah, I, I, I have enjoyed that a great deal, and I'm hoping that the players, everyone who I've introduced to group so far, everyone has thoroughly enjoyed it. So I imagine that this group will be uh, you know no different uh, than what the others were. So stop sign, honey, you got to stop. <laughs> Sorry, trying to avoid a collision myself. Uh, so that's um, that's GURPS, and I mean, I think that what I'm going to do with GURPS is the same I have been doing with a lot of other uh, systems, which is to say that I'm going to uh, introduce the characters with, uh, or the players with uh, pre-generated characters, and then we will go from there to um, to develop, you know, yeah, yeah, their own characters uh, for our own uh, settings if we wish to later on. But for now, uh, we're going to be uh, just sticking to pre-gen to get the, uh, you know, players wrap their heads around it. And I, I recently reinstalled my uh, GURPS um, companion. It's it's a, the program you use to build GURPS characters, and it's amazing. Like it's, it's like 12 bucks, and it's got every rule book. You can download stuff for every rule book and every even source book, like a PDF supplement they've, they've released in the last 10 years. All that shit you can download for free, and you can use that to build your character, print out character sheets and stuff. It's great. 
Um, so that's one of the games, GURPS. Uh, GURPS is something that I am, yeah, I'm pretty excited to get back. I bet you it's going it's, it, to, okay, so one last thing I should say too. Reading RuneQuest made me really long for GURPS as well. Uh, because RuneQuest has a fairly complicated uh, tactical combat system in it. And it's fairly lethal. And there's hit locations and stuff like that. And as I'm reading this, I, all I'm thinking is, you know, I think GURPS does this better. GURPS does a better job of modeling things like types of damage, uh, types of weapons. You know, the way you, you calculate melee damage in your uh, in GURPS is, depends on whether you're swinging the weapon, which does more, or, or thrusting the weapon, which does less. And then there's different types of damage, like piercing of th- four different sizes, impaling, uh, cutting, um, slashing. What is it? No, there's cutting, uh, bludgeoning, or impact, I think it's called. And uh, no, it's not impact. It's uh, bludgeoning, uh, slashing, and uh, crushing. And then different kinds of armor can interact with different ways with it. And like all this stuff is is optional. The, there's the default sort of set of rules, and you can dial it up and dial it down. Like in default GURPS, there's flexible armor. So uh, flexible armor like uh, leather armor or chainmail uh, does not protect as well against bludgeoning weapons as say um, you know rigid plate. Um, that's not actually not in Dungeon Fantasy, the sort of you know D and D style uh, fantasy game that uh, Steve Jackson published a couple of years ago. Uh, but uh, but it is in the default one, and I like it. Like it's it does a really I don't know. Like I mean, I mean if it sounds like I'm gushing about GURPS, it's because I really have had a lot of fun with that system, and I love I love like fiddling around with it too. You know, it's just a fun it's a fun fun uh, system. Sit down and kind of think about what you're. Know, how you're going to model things and how to theory craft characters, and the um, the the game at the table feels very immersive. You know because injury functions the way that um, you know the way that it does in in a quote unquote the real world. The re- reason you have you know like a spear is is a is a uh, you know potentially a lethal uh, attack. Uh, it makes the game really immersive. It makes it feel real. Uh, and it's ex- extremely uh, light on its feet when you play it too. Like the, the uh, uh, contest between different uh, targets is very easy to model in uh, in GURPS. So if someone's like uh, wrestling or someone's trying to you know use their superpowers against someone else's superpowers, it's easy to model how you dice you know how you gamify that. And then there's there's ways to um, to give characters tactics within those uh, rules as well. So it's uh, yeah, boy, I'm really looking forward to getting that one back to the table. I think that's supplanted. If I'm going to run a, a, a dark fantasy game, I am much more likely to use that uh, than I am to use uh, Zweihander right now because I, I have a much clearer idea of what I'd want to do with that. And to be honest, I think it, it, I would have more fun with it um, than I would with uh, with Zweihander. I just I just adore GURPS. And maybe like my players will not like it, but <laughs> we'll see. If they don't like it, then I won't run it for them anymore. But uh, but yeah, I'm looking. I'm I'm very much looking forward to that. Um, so that's GURPS. Let's talk about uh, next. Let's turn to the World of Darkness. So I was going to talk about uh, World of Darkness, but instead I'm actually going to talk in this segment about uh, another White Whale game. And it's a game is such a weird obsession of mine. Um, so the game is the third edition of the Mech Warrior RPG. And the this is also uh, called uh, Classic Battletech RPG. And the reason it's got two different names is because MechWarrior 3rd Edition came out right at the tail end of FASA's existence, right before it was uh, the assets for Battletech were purchased by uh, Catalyst. And then uh, Catalyst had the, uh, 
purchased it and it rebranded uh, the Battletech assets as classic Battletech to distinguish it from the Dark Age Battletech that was out at the time with uh, WizKid Games. So it's this particular role-playing game is is has been published under two different names. There's the Mech War. It was Mech Warrior Third, which itself had a lot of really fucking cool supplements for it, and then uh, it was re-released as Classic BattleTech RPG, and then there was a Classic BattleTech RPG Companion that was published for it as well. But those two things are are completely compatible with each other. This is different from the previous versions of. Uh, of the battles of uh, Mech Warrior RPG, so like Mech Warrior First and Mech Warrior Second Edition RPG are completely different games, totally unrecognizable with each other. The first one, I've never really made sense of what the hell, how like how to play it. It was so complicated and so confusing. Uh, Mech Warrior Second Edition was very much like a a watered down version of. Uh, Shadowrun in some ways, uh, and then had a very unique uh, dice mechanic. It's actually a pretty cool game. It just it doesn't it doesn't weather well over long periods of time, and I don't think it quite fits the. It integrates okay with the tabletop uh, miniature game, but um, yeah. Anyway, so there's the second edition. It's not that, and then it is also different from the current one. At the time of recording, is a time of war, which is the current version of the RPG, and. Uh, the major difference between a time of war and uh, Mech Warrior Third is that they changed uh, the dice mechanic. So you're rolling in Mech Warrior Third, you roll two d ten for task resolution, and sometimes you roll an extra one and, and drop the highest or drop the lowest. Uh, but in a time of war, task resolution is two d six, just like in the tabletop game. Um, there's also no exploding dice in uh, the current version. There, where there is exploding dice in uh, Mech Warrior Third. And damage is completely different. Uh, damage, the damage mechanics in a time of war are different from what they are in a time in uh, Mech Warrior Third. Uh, also, there are there's a life path system that can be really unforgiving in Mech Warrior Third, uh, where there is not that in um, what do you call it in uh, uh, time of war. Time of war is much more. Uh, there is a life path system, but it's it's not quite as the same where you're rolling on life events the way that you do in Mech Warrior 3rd. So, so that's the game I'm talking about. It's a very it's a weird niche thing. I've actually recently been doing some um, searches online and it seems that this game has no major fans. Like no one really loves this game even as a niche thing. Like there are people who still love, you know, World of Cinnabar and and claim to enjoy that thing. Uh, nobody seems to like this game except for me, but boy, do I love it. Like, and I, I don't. I honestly couldn't really pin down what it is specifically about it. I think the the art at the time is uh, there's a ton of great Steve Prescott art in it, and I just love that. Um, you roll for damage in Mech Warrior Third, which is what you don't do in uh, Time of War. Um, but for whatever reason, I just completely fell in love with this game. Like, it just. I love the. I mean, I'm I'm a sucker for a good life path character generation system anyway, and life event system. So there's there's that. Um, I also love the task resolution, like the 2d10 versus the 2d6. 2d10 gives a, a better spread of uh, of results on it. I love the idea of the exploding dice, and the damage mechanic in it is so weird, <laughs> and I just love it. Like it's so. What you do is you roll for damage. Uh, regardless of whether you're doing melee or you're doing a ranged attack in, in personal combat, you are first thing you do is you take a look at what your degree of success is. So however much you rolled over your target number, that is your starting point. 
then to that you add a dice roll, uh, depending on what your, your uh, damage is. So you roll that. Those dice can explode as well, and you're always rolling d6s on that, so your dice can explode on that. Then what you do is you compare that to a table, and then it'll tell you what degree of injury there is. Then you compare the armor piercing for the type of uh, damage from your weapon versus the armor rating on your uh, what you're hitting, and then that will bump the damage down a tiers. So if this sounds like a pretty <laughs> convoluted way of getting to a damage thing, yeah, you're not wrong. And there's also you know, stun results that can happen and fatigue that can happen. And uh, also you track your wound level, uh, which all matters into how you resolve these things. But in spite of that bonkers amount of complexity, I just adore it. Like I adore the, the system for how unnecessarily convoluted it is. Like it's just, boy, what a fun system. And I've only run it a handful of times. But uh, actually, I'm not even sure I've ever run this. I've run A Time of War. I don't know if I've ever actually run this game. But for whatever reason, this game just, man, it has lodged itself in my in my psyche as the way to run, um, you know, to run a Battletech role-playing game. Um, and uh, part of it is because it had some really really, really good supplements. Like, it had a Mech Warrior's Guide to Solaris 7, and if you're not familiar with the Mech Warrior universe, Solaris 7 is a... Uh, it's a planet that's near... It's in sort of like the... It's not near, like, Terran space or the core worlds, but it's sort of close to that. And uh, it's where all... Most importantly, what it is, is it's the home of the giant mech gladiatorial combat, uh, you know, and the different arenas and gladiator teams and stables of mech, you know, mech warriors and whatnot, and gambling and and uh, internecine struggles between uh, criminals and great houses and you know uh, washed up gla- um, mech warriors or political enemies or just you know um, entertainment kind of gla- like the sort of like um, sports slash reality star icons, you know. That's what Solaris 7 is, and it's just what an interesting place to set your your campaign um, where you get to do both mech combat and all sorts of cool, you know, um, role-playing uh, elements as well. So they had a great supplement for that. They had a great supplement that was a guide to the clans. They had a great um, supplement for um, uh, gear as well, too, called the Lost Tech. And uh, I had a couple of those at the time, or like when I was a kid, and I sold them. And right, like tracking those things down now for a game that it, it seems to not have massive fans. Like, holy shit, is it hard tracking down those books now? Uh, but anyway, the um, I just love that uh, that that game, and I had been joking uh, recently about um, you know uh, about. Was I'm not sure I was even joking, but I was talking to someone else about this is Game of Thrones in space. Like that's the way that you play uh, a mech warrior campaign. You don't play like you know a military campaign where you're just having trappings of some role playing. Uh, so you know interspersed with massive long uh, tabletop encounters uh, because that's not really what the novels are. If you look at what the novels are about, the novels do have some battle battle mech combat, but the vast majority of it is about other stuff. It's all the you know, role-playing, not the role-playing, it's what would be role-playing in the game. And this particular game would be a really fun way of doing it, and uh, I don't know. Uh, I've been reading over MechWarrior 3rd, and the fact that I've never got this book, you know, this game to the table, this weird, you know, problematic, not problematic in the sense that it's got, like, 
you know, social issues or whatnot too. Just like there are some very weird and, <laughs> you know, really um, ornate uh, design, like, uh, you know, decisions that were made in the mechanics of this game. Uh, and in spite of how cumbersome those seem to be, I just really, really want to play this game. So I think that we're probably going to, I'm probably going to like make some of the players, uh, well, I mean, for the ones who are willing, uh, some of my players see if they, we can spend an, a day to make these characters and uh, either do that or just generate some characters uh, blunt some of the softer edges with the life path system because the downside of the life path system is you can make effectively, you know, unplayable characters. It is not a system where you can go into it thinking, I want to make a cool mech warrior. You can start with that in mind and then just see where the life path takes you. You know, it's it's much more punishing like the way the uh, old school traveler games are where, you know, life can take your character in directions that you as the player did not intend them. Uh, and that is not always what players want, right? Like, players don't necessarily want to be like, well, I'm saddled with this crippled, you know, physically, uh, you know, disabled uh, or mentally, you know, disabled uh, a character as a result of its, you know, suffering through the life of, uh, uh, you know, a, a very unforgiving, you know, inner sphere existence. Um, but, um, but I don't know, man. Oh, it just... It, for whatever reason, that game, that game is still something that sticks in my craw as a game I really, really want to at least try. And it appeals to me much more so. And in particular, the, the life path with the life path system with the different events that happen, because I, I feel like you get a much more interesting character in the course of doing that um, than you do just building a character. You know, and in particular, character for players who are not necessarily steeped in the, you know, decades-old uh, backstory, you know, that, that exists in the Battletech universe. Seeing just kind of what, what develops over the course of uh, your life path as a way of educating the players who may not know that system backwards and forwards. But, uh, in any event, that, that is, speaking of games that I have been looking at, oof, that's, that's another game that I've been really thinking about uh, a lot lately. And for just, you know, for such a <laughs> For a game that no one seems to remember and no one seems to really want to, like, you know, have have fond memories of, it's so, it has really, for myself, it's it, more so than any other obscure game, it has really lodged itself in my memory as a, a game with great fondness, or to which I have great fondness, so... Anyway, so that, that is something else I've been, I've been thinking about a lot is, is MechWarrior 3rd. And that actually leads me to the next thing, too, is, is um, something I've started doing in the last month or so that I, I used to do a lot more so, but um, started doing again now, which is, uh, you know, old friends in, uh, in new clothing. So let's talk about that in the next segment. All right, so the next uh, segment here, what I want to talk about is... Um, uh, I, I, like I said last thing, is, is old friends and new clothes. So one of the things that I used to do uh, quite a bit uh, for, um, for you know, basically like taking small breaks or, you know, special one-shots for old campaigns is I would take, um, you know, the characters from our existing campaign and then I would reskin them into whatever game I wanted to try out uh, just so the players would have a an easy kind of like you know, point of reference for who these characters are as, you know, so they weren't just, they weren't both learning characters as well as learning a new system. So like an example of that is our first gaming marathon. 
at that time we were playing a extended campaign for uh, Fantasy Flight's Star Wars. We were using all three of the Star Wars games to uh, to run an extended campaign in that. But for the gaming marathon, I wanted to run uh, Warhammer Fantasy Third Edition, the Fantasy Flight version. So what I did for that was I created. Warhammer fantasy th- versions of all of the characters from, um, you know, from that uh, that campaign. So, you know, our um, our what was he? He was a um, not a Trandoshan. Uh, oh man, I, I my drawing a blank for my uh, <laughs> my guys here. Anyway, one of the characters was a um, a Duros. He was a Duros. Uh, uh, saboteur. Well, he became a halfling um, uh, assassin, I think. Is uh, assassin? I can't remember what he was. But anyway, the uh, you know the, the our um, Twi'lek bounty hunter became a wood elf bounty hunter. Our um, human smuggler became a human smuggler, and so forth. You know, we went through all of them, um, and um, and that was I mean that, that's something I used to do quite a bit. If, if we wanted to sort of, it was a good. Uh, pressure valve, you know, for releasing my impetus to try different games without derailing a campaign in general and making an easy, again, like an easy frame of reference. And it's been quite a few years because I've been having an, uh, because I've had an opportunity to do a lot of, um, you know, run a lot of different games over the last little while. I really haven't done that quite a bit. And it's only been recently that I started sort of thinking of like, oh, I, you know, I've, I've rediscovered that and I've started sort of taking characters from certain campaigns that have a lot of miles underneath them, like my uh, Reavers of Tula Ash campaign, and then thinking about, well, what would these characters look like in, say, the Star Wars Fantasy Flight games? Or what would they look like in Warhammer Fantasy? Or what would they look like in, say, Werewolf the Apocalypse? You know, and um, it's, it's, a, it's a fun, I mean, setting aside it's a fun mental exercise, um, it's also, I think, a really handy way to try to you know, come to terms with what you're going to do with a new game as well. You know, I've done that with Starfinder with these ones. I've done that with the Werewolf the Apocalypse one was actually, I think, the most interesting one because what I came up with was, you know, with um, Stranger Things being a a big thing in the news right now, I thought, okay, let's take these, the the basis, like these characters that we've got from our Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea game, these swords and sorcery characters, are, is there a way of me echoing these characters in kind of an eternal champion kind of way in a, like, kids on bikes werewolf the apocalypse (laughs) version, right? Where, like, our berserker character is actually a you know, a surly Arun uh, character you know, Arun um, warrior, you know, character uh, full moon werewolf uh, from the Geta Fenris tribe, you know, but he's manifest as a surly teenager who gets in lots of fights, you know, and our uh, warlock character who's this mythical, you know, whatever guy with kind of a Kimiri Celt background, well, maybe he's a Irish-descended or Celtic-descended at least um, uh, Fia, a Fina uh, tribe's uh, werewolf who's from a, the, um, what do you call it? It's the Philodox. He's the sort of mystic type of, of uh, half-moon you know, werewolf. So it's just proven a lot of fun. Our, our Amazonian, you know, uh, warlock will likewise be a, you know, um, a, uh, you know, tomboy, you know, oversized tomboy girl from the, um, what are, what are they called? The, um, oh, black, the black, not black fangs, what are they called? 
uh, Black Furies uh, tribe, which is a exclusively female tribe for the uh, werewolves. So anyway, I mean, it, it's been a uh, it's a fun mental exercise that I really love doing with, uh, and I enjoyed doing a lot in the past. And um, it's also a fun way to kind of like to think about those characters in a different way as well too. But anyway, like it's it's not something um, I'm um, I'm doing anytime soon. But it has been a lot of fun to get back into certain games and really even pushing it into areas where it would be really like it's really a different setting with completely different sensibilities from what you would expect from that setting. So like for instance, you know. I actually was reskinning some characters from Ash. I'm like, what would I see these characters as in a modern day setting? So like Pulp Cthulhu. What's how would I I you know what would be the echo of those character tropes? Because those characters have very strong personalities now. They've got a very um, clear idea of what those characters are and are not. So what would those look like in what would their eternal hero versions be in these other settings? And the reason I wanted to mention that is not because of the you know the sort of idle speculation that it went through my, it's just, I, I have found in the past, it's been a pretty helpful way to just to construct one shots that give, especially if you play with the same group to provide them with easy rules of thumb of like, Oh, this is who this character is. Now I just need to learn the setting and the, the mechanics for it. You know, it's a fun exercise uh, and uh, a fun diversion too. If you want to do like celebrate something special, like someone's birthday or an anniversary with the campaign or whatever, um, or like a, a specific holiday, you want to do a, a you know a Halloween session, or a, I don't know. I mean, Easter le- lends itself less easily to you know RPG ideas, but I mean, you know, if you've got, if you've got some kind of special thing you want to you want to uh, explore, as Halloween in particular lends itself to this. Um, that's that's a fun way to consider doing that. You know, take existing characters, and then when you're making one uh, you know pre-gen characters for the one shots, make different versions of them and an interesting thing there too is sometimes you get an opportunity to get into a dialogue with the players of you know because you're going to be making the characters based on your perception of what they've been playing at the table and it's sometimes interesting to see how that differs from what they see you know because afterwards i've had players sometimes be like that's cool that you saw it that way uh, you know it, I, here's how i've been thinking of the character but it's it's neat that you see them that way instead you know and uh i love that i, I love talking about the characters in that capacity if you really want to uh, also be really you know arch with your um, your meta narrative construct for this in uh, the Monty Cook games uh, RPG the strange the so, sort of one of the assumptions of the setting is that there are all these like pocket universes adjacent to quote unquote real you know reality that are manifestations of fictional worlds. So adjacent to reality, there's all these different things. So like anything that's in fiction, be it, you know, massive popular fiction or niche stuff, it's out there, you know, and that's a pretty funny way to structure as a meta narrative, the pocket universes that all of your characters exist in. You know, I've used that before for a past adventure for a one shot to celebrate my birthday, where I had the player's convince their characters in a conversation why they needed to go along with this mission that was going to send them to some other thing. So I drew characters from a bunch of old campaigns. I basically I had the players tell me who their favorite characters were from each of these campaigns. We plucked them out of their fictional world, brought them to our quote-unquote real world 
the players had a conversation with those characters to convince them to go on this special task, and then all the players' favorite characters went off on this mission to sort try to. And I mean, in a in a setup that I've used before in a meta you know narrative kind of way, it's something where once again I as the DM, me personally, I did something to threaten the world. So they just stopped me or the consequences of my stupid actions. And it was awesome. <laughs> it was so much fun. And then in that one too, I got to inject one of my favorite, not, not a character I played in a, in a tabletop role-playing game, but it was my favorite um, character from uh, the World of Warcraft game, this little gnome uh, wiz- uh, mage named Weezard. They had to thwart Weezard who had gone bad and uh, had manipulated me into doing something that was threatening the ex- you know all of existence. And I don't mention that. I mean, I mentioned that partly because I had a lot of fun with that ex- that campaign. Boy, that was fun. Or that uh, that one shot. Um, but it's it's a fun framework, you know. If you really th- if you think of these characters in in that kind of way, you know, there, there's um, a similar you know setup in the the comic Planetary, where they they talk about these characters or these characters in that who were fictionauts who were ex- going into fiction and they brought someone out of fiction that was threatening existence. You know, who are able to travel to the fiction and bring them out. That that's just a fun thing to think about. You know, in the same way that Mage the Ascension or um, uh, uh, yeah, Mage the Ascension is a fun thing to think about of these characters actually existing in this pocket universe, and that our decisions and whatnot are are altering them. But the idea that you could pluck them out of that fiction, make them aware that they are part of that fiction, and then send them on some other wacko adventure where they're going to be seen, you know, reskinned. In the in the course of traveling the strange, they will be reskinned to be, you know, native versions of that. If they're going to a Sherlock Holmes, you know, reality, that reality will rework them to fit the setting of that trapping. So then, what what are the trappings of that setting? So then, what on earth would that look like? You know, what would your paladin look like in that kind of setting? Um, what would your you know dwarven rune priest? What would that look like? What would your Traveler, you know, look like if you're, tra- you know, from a traveler RPG setting between the things. Yeah, it's just it's you know I, I think that it's for 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 an extended campaign. I mean, you're losing some of the elements that make those particular settings meaningful. But for special one shots, boy oh boy, like what a fun way of thinking about those characters in a brand new way without completely disrupting your campaign. And then you can leave it open as to whether that actually happened in your campaign, whether they were actually plucked out of that campaign and then plunked back in, whether those characters are actually aware of this wider setting or whether they forgot about it altogether. You know, your your headcanon for what has happened with them can determine what, what the reality is. And, and you don't need to have that disrupt your ongoing campaign at all. You know, unless the characters die, I guess. <laughs> but um, presumably they're not going to. You know, presumably they're going to go and have some crazy fun adventure and then they're going to get plunked back into their old setting so that's a fun exercise I really really enjoy that um, I mean not to the point of uh, you know disrupting the campaign overall and there's some some games you can't do that with because if players have signed up to play say Pathfinder and then you show up this weekend like hey we're doing this one shot based you know in something else um, then some players may not be on board with that but you know for me um, those are probably players I don't want to play with, you know. I mean, like I, 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 I want to be able to present what I think is going to be a make for a really fun and surprising and engaging and memorable uh, experience. And I wouldn't do that all the time, but boy, it's a lot of fun. It's a really, really fun exercise to uh, to surprise your players with that, to to let them see their characters in a new, you know, in a new perspective. So, 
And I mean, you know, depending on who the players are, they may really want to participate in it. They may be on board with that and think like, okay, my character from my, you know, D&D game, uh, that's who this character is, but what the hell are they going to look like in the Star Wars universe? What would they look like in a Doctor Who episode? You know, what would they look like in Rifts, in the crazy kitchen sink, wacko, gonzo setting of Rifts? What would they look like? So... Yeah. Anyway, that that's one thing that's also been occupying my mind, and I'm probably going to do a, a full proper podcast episode about that stuff, and I'll use an example. But uh, that's another thing. It's so the last thing I've been delaying it. Let's talk about the world of uh, darkness and how that's been sort of playing around in my mind, and then we'll call it an episode because I have been talking about a bunch of different random things for a long enough time. Time to call this an episode. So let's turn to the gothic horror or the um, what do you call it? the gothic punk trappings of the World of Darkness setting. Okay, so the last thing I'm going to talk about today is the World of Darkness. So the World of Darkness is, uh, for those who are unfamiliar, was kind of the name that was attributed to, not attributed, it was given to the uh, uh, to the overarching kind of setting for White Wolf's series of games. Uh, they're uh, let's see here, the four or you know, five uh, initial games, and then there were a couple sort of tag-ons afterwards. The initial five were the, uh, let's see here, Vampire the Masquerade, Werewolf the Apocalypse, uh, Mage the Ascension, uh, Wraith the Oblivion, and uh, Changeling the Dreaming. Uh, this was also followed by uh, Mummy the Kev Can't Remember It, and... Uh, Demon the Fallen. And there may have been one other one in there. Uh, I think that's all. Actually, no, no. I think it's just Mummy, which is sort of like an appendage. And there was a, a standalone, kind of standalone book for Kindred of the East as well, but that was uh, not really its own thing. But those are the big five. Anyway, I'm getting lost in trivia here. Uh, those are the, the big, um, the initial five. Uh, and the setting for it was this thing called the, you know, the Gothic... Uh, they called it uh, Gothic Punk, uh, which was sort of like had the trappings of sort of the, you know, rebellious, anti-authoritarian, you know, punk rock feel of the, or at least what what uh, the '90s thought of as their, you know, their punk rock feel, late '80s, early '90s, uh, mixed with the sort of Gothic trappings of the, um, you know, classic Victorian kind of atmospheric uh, literature, of Gothic horror. And, um, you know, like, to be honest, like, there wasn't really a clear, for those games at least, there isn't, uh, there wasn't a, like, agnostic one setting. There were sort of five games that all shared some similarities, but there were certain assumptions about the underlying cosmology for some of the games that was incompatible with some of the others. Um, it depended on what game you approached uh, as your, like, your viewpoint Mage was the one that sort of provided the best overall way of integrating all of the different um, the assumptions of the other settings of the other games, but it also kind of in a way trivialized some of the assumptions of the other games. You know, like uh, it's so. I mean, so anyway, the the uh, that was the um, uh, the the world of darkness. But I adored those games back in the day. You know, like I, I uh, really enjoyed those, and I credit my love of you know um, I, I really was a history nerd beforehand anyway uh, you know to a, a great degree but really exploring arcane uh, elements of, uh, of history and like 
you know, when I was younger, conspiracy theories and stuff like that, I have subsequently grown out of a lot of those. And But, I mean, it's what prompted me to really want to study history. And I, my, I, in my undergrad, my history was my minor, but it was my major up until a certain point. And largely, I think I credit those games for exposing me to so many things. I'm like, oh, my God, what does this word mean? What does this thing mean? What's this uh, setting they're talking about, this historical period, you know? Mage, um, there was a, a sub-game called... Uh, Sorcerer's Crusade that I just adored. I love the game. Never ran it, but I love, love, love the idea of like this um, this whole game set during the the time of the late Renaissance or the Reformation. It, it prompted me to take uh, in my first or second year of, of undergrad. I took a whole course load, you know, semester courses on uh, Renaissance and Reformation history. Uh, but anyway, uh, the. Uh, the World of Darkness is, like I said, it's a, a, a game uh, or a setting, a series of games that I just had a huge impact on me as a kid. And I had also, uh, in the recent years, as Onyx Path Publishing has released 20th anniversary editions of each of those games, I have been voraciously picking them up and reading them. And uh, recently, I, I've gone back to them as well, too. And I, I don't know what prompted me to go back to them, but... Um, I've been maybe part of this whole reskinning characters thing, but uh, I've really been thinking about getting them, uh, some of them, to the table. In particular, uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse and uh, Mage the Ascension. I've talked about Mage the Ascension actually in the last podcast or two episodes ago, quite a bit about how to how to approach this thing. Uh, but um, you know, one one of the um, and I guess in a related way, I've also been looking at the most recent version of uh, Vampire the Masquerade. Now. Vampire the Masquerade is another... It's a game that I also have loved and, and uh, had since first edition. I never really played it all that much because... Uh, you know, for, let me preface this by saying, like, this is just my own personal preferences. And it is no... I don't cast judgment on how anybody else chooses to interface with their role-playing games and how they enjoy playing their games. But um, when I was a teenager, when uh, that was out, and when, the, when Vampire the Masquerade was first out... And uh, when, in particular, Mind's Eye Theater, their, their sort of like live-action role-playing version started coming out, um, I, I went to two sessions of the, of the live-action role-playing, and I'm not sure I felt as foolish uh, doing that as I, as I have doing anything else. You know, like, I mean, there's... Um, it's, it's my own hang-ups and my own whatever reasons. It just does not jive with me. I did I really didn't enjoy it. I felt very silly doing it. Um, and I, I the role-playing game itself, I don't know whether that's impacted my view of the setting, but it just... I can't help but feel that the, um, the Vampire the Masquerade, the elements of the setting, are just so silly because they're so self-serious. You know, like the... For those who aren't familiar... The setup for Vampire is that, you know, there are tons of different clans that uh, and different sort of organizations amongst the vampires. So there's the Camarilla, there's the Sabbat, there is the Anarchs, which are different sort of grand groupings of um, vampires that have, have uh, you know, come together to try and, you know, keep their, protect their existence. And, and within those, there are different clans. And within those clans and between those clans, there are rivalries. So, you know, the any given vampire campaign is going to take place in some city, probably. And then there, you're going to be inter, you're going to be dealing with the internecine squabbles and politics of the vampires in there. And 
each of the different organizations, not the Anarchs, but the Sabah and the Camarilla has specific structures and like, you know, there's names for different positions within it. And, uh, like in uh, the Camarilla, there's the, a prince is the person, who, whether male or female, who runs the, uh, you know, the given city. And like all of that sounds, it, it's a great structure for, you know, the game is about you navigating the, the politics while also, you know, experiencing the personal horror of becoming a vampire and trying to, you know, struggle with the uh, maintaining the, what humanity you have left after becoming this inhuman monster. All that sounds really cool, but it just is so silly. Like it's so silly in, in practice for, for for me that it I feel foolish, you know, um, you know, speaking the using the faux Latin terms or the Latin terms that that make up the the different positions in it and role playing these goofy elder vampires who hold the positions of power within this the thing as well and like. I don't know. Like I, I just, I have not found a way to engage with that stuff to where I just don't feel it's, it's just silly. And it, again, it is my own hangups with that particular game. I still love getting the books. I still love reading the stuff. I enjoy it in the same way that like a, you know, I enjoy watching interview with the vampire, but it just feels silly to me. It feels so played out that I, I can't find a fresh way that doesn't feel like a caricature to engage with that stuff. You know, uh, I compare that to, the other World of Darkness games where I don't feel quite as... It doesn't feel like I'm trapped in a stereotype the way that uh, I am with Vampire the Masquerade. So um, that's probably the reason I haven't... I've been looking at my Vampire the Masquerade stuff, particularly the newest edition, um, but I just have not... I'm still stuck in that... uh, You know, the limitations of my own perspective on it, which is the... uh, Seeing it as that stereotype version of, you know, the, the... angry goths that I knew when I was a teenager, right? So, uh, I don't know. Uh, but the vampire, or the uh, werewolf stuff, werewolf the apocalypse, which is really set up as kind of like a, you know, fang and claw, supernatural echo warriors fighting against these two overwhelming supernatural, um, like, um, they're, they're beings, but they're not really, they're more like you know, just drives. There's the, the weaver, which is the construction, uh, you know, the builder um, who's gone mad and is trying to like destroy all um, the wild, which is like the the primal and um, untamed elements of nature. The uh, weaver is set against that, uh, and then also the there's the worm, which was originally the sort of natural status of um, of uh, decay, but has become corruption instead. So both the weaver and the wild, so the weaver and the worm are are. Uh, mad, and there are these primal forces that are pushing against the wild, trying to destroy the and corrupt the wild. And the werewolves are the last kind of bastions standing against that. And then within that, there's also politics and, and whatnot too. But just a real badass concept for playing heroes, right? In kind of a, a grim, dark kind of uh, setting. And uh, Mage: The Ascension, I talked about at, at length on here. But those are the two I've particularly been engaged with. I I, I want to like uh, Changeling more too, but I haven't uh, wrapped my head around how to approach that. Yet, that's the game I would most likely want to run a real, like, quote-unquote, urban fantasy. And I mean fantasy in the classic kind of, like, telling fantasy stories kind of setting. I don't mean just telling modern modern stories where players, you know, happen to have supernatural abilities. Um, but anyway, the, the uh, Mage and Werewolf have been on my bedside reading quite a bit lately. And uh, I mentioned I've got kind of an idea of how I might reskin one of my groups 
as a very different approach on a, on a werewolf basis. And I don't want to say more because I know that some of my players are listeners in the podcast, but if I do decide to go forward with that, I think it's going to be a lot of fucking fun. It's, it's a neat um, setting. And even if I don't do that, it's an easy, easily repurposed thing to allow players to come in without any understanding of the setting and really just make characters over the course of a session uh, as a kind of session zero, but still actually playing through an, an adventure as we do that. So, um, so that's pretty cool. And um, I have thought about trying to combine some of these options, like by combining GURPS with uh, either Werewolf or Mage, because there are GURPS versions of uh, both those are source books for Mage the Ascension and for uh, Werewolf the Apocalypse, and to be honest, for Vampire the Masquerade, for GURPS as well. Because I'm just the core mechanic for the World of Darkness, which is rolling dice pools of uh, 10 sided dice. I'm not a huge fan of that one. Um, but to be honest, I never really ran the, the limited amount of experience I had with it as a kid. I don't know if we ran it properly. So maybe it's worth giving it a try again before we make a final judgment on whether that's just not the right system for it. But yeah, I don't know. It's, it's weird that, that I, um, uh, I, you know, think life is taking me back to some games that I really obsessed over in the 90s, you know, uh, MechWarrior 3rd and uh, these other games like um, Werewolf and, and uh, Mage. But uh, it's it's been a lot of fun going back, especially having played a lot of uh, story games and a lot of uh, OSR games in the last year. So it's, it's interesting to try and see these games and how I might use them in that way. So that's it. I think that's that's all the games that, uh, or the, the World of Darkness. I, I don't really have anything planned with them right now, but I'm a lot closer now to what I'm going to do with the World of Darkness games than what I was uh, two months ago, say. So that seems pretty cool. Particularly with Werewolf. Werewolf seems to be the one I'm landing back on because it's easier to think of, well, how would I interpret heroes going on an adventure who have a clearly defined enemy? It's a lot easier to, to come up with that in Werewolf than it is in... Uh, say mage you know uh, or say vampire which is a it's not doesn't lend itself to that kind of thing it's it's that game is a totally different it's about and you do different things in it than you do in like a traditional fantasy game or sci-fi game or whatever so so anyway that's that's a pretty I, I imagine that has been at least more than an hour in total for this particular episode of me rambling about games I'm running and games I want to run uh, so probably Let's wind up this section here in the World of Darkness now, and I'll, I'll make with maybe a little bit of an extended outro. So that is uh, one heck of a wandering, <laughs> kind of aimlessly across my uh, the landscape of my current games, uh, my games to come, and uh, some other games that I may never even get to the table. But, um, but anyway, um, as always, if you have any comments, questions, or concerns regarding this uh, episode, please don't hesitate to uh, shoot me a line on Anchor or uh, shoot me a message on uh, Twitter at Dungeon Musings or shoot me an email at Dungeon, or my email address is dungeonmusings at gmail.com. Um, a quick final word, too. I want to say a big, 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 big thanks to uh, everybody who participated in our uh, inaugural um, Heroes Save Villages uh, charity raffle. Uh, we had the big draw for that about two weeks ago now at the time of recording. Uh, not quite, but very close to it. And um, over the course of the uh, two months, uh, we raised uh, a little over uh, $1,200 uh, for the SOS Children's Villages International Charity. So uh, a massive thank you to uh, everyone who uh, participated in that. Uh, if you did enter the draw and you have not checked the um, 
whether or not you won, um, please be sure to check the uh, Dungeon Musings YouTube channel. And uh, I've got posted at the very top of that, the draw. So I've got all the names on there. And even if you don't want to waste time, listen through all of them. Just skip to the end. And I think I went through them one more time as well, just to give everyone um, to call out. So if you... Uh, uh, if you did see your name um, or you did enter and you haven't checked that uh, yet, I'd encourage you to do so. Otherwise, I uh, hope this finds everyone well. Hope things are going great at your tables. And until next time, happy gaming.